All right. So what are we talking about today? It's hard to say. It's yeah. hard to say. <laughs> it's undecidable. undecidable. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Raise the visibility of quality within your team of Code Climate and start shipping better code faster. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 120 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have David Brady. All programs halt. Computer science is a fraud. Josh Susser. Uh, my introduction is NP complete. James Edward Gray. I am made of Lambda Calculus. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. We have a special guest this week, and that is Tom Stewart. Hello from sunny London. That's not true. I've been what? In London. <laughs> I was going to say it's it a beautiful day in London today. What? There were no beautiful days. I was there for half a month. <laughs> Got to plan ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you, you have to be, to be there. Doors doing a pod call. Okay, let's not let's not do a podcast about weather. How are you doing, Tom? <laughs> uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> uh, could use more sleep, but I'm I'm feeling great. Um, uh, yeah. Since you're new to the show, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Uh, yeah, uh, my name's Tom Stewart. Um, I'm a Ruby and Rails developer and and freelancer, and I just wrote a book. I think that's probably what we're going to talk about today. Is probably that a book. We, yeah. we could talk about the weather. <laughs> I'm telling that would, you. That, that would be the British thing to do, but I don't want to impose myself on you. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll catch him on the other nice day that happens in London. Yeah, there's probably two. <laughs> right, cool. So, uh, so cool book. The, uh, Tom, Tom, I got to ask you, why did you write this book? Oh, wow. Um, Can we say what the book is? Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> Go for it, James. Oh, it's called Understanding Computation. Ooh. Therefore, you read this book and then you understand computation. I I, I like the uh, the subtitle from simple machines to impossible programs. That that's like I feel every day. Kind mm. <laughs> of is, yeah. So okay, back to the question, Tom. Why did you write a book about understanding computation? Okay, well, that's a good question. Well, there were kind of the, the, the story is long and boring, but there are two basic reasons why I wrote it. And firstly, it's that I was a self-taught programmer as a kid. And then I did an undergraduate degree in mathematics. And as part of that, I had to learn a load of, you know, difficult stuff that I didn't find very easy. And when I went on to be a graduate student in computer science, I found it extremely challenging to uh, learn the things that I was supposed to learn. And it was very difficult to internalize all of these ideas so when I was, I was trying to learn i was trying to do programming language research i was trying to learn about you know compilers and programming language semantics and a lot of these and sort of computation theory and stuff like that and i found those things very difficult and it required a lot of kind of mining i would sit with textbooks for a really long time just kind of frowning at them and looking at loads of mathematical notation and not really getting it 
And then I would eventually get it. And in the moment where I got it, I was simultaneously delighted by how cool it was and incredibly frustrated by how long it had taken me to get this cool idea into my head. So at that point, I kind of realized that there were interesting ideas that I wish I had already known about, but that I'd never really felt would be accessible to me. The other thing was that as a graduate student, I was doing a lot of teaching of undergraduates and trying to explain stuff to them. And I I gave some lectures on optimizing compilers and stuff like that. And I found that a really enjoyable experience because it's kind of a cliche, but I found that trying to explain things to people really helped me to clarify my own understanding of them. And sitting down with some smart people and trying to get them to trying to communicate ideas to them in a way that was clear and made sense kind of really forced me to get everything straight in my head and figure out what all the dependencies were and really kind of plug the ideas together in a way that made sense to me so I could communicate them to someone else. So those were kind of the two main, um, the two main things that conspired in my head. And this was about a decade ago that both of those things happened. And, and at that moment, I remember thinking, I really should like write down all of these things that I think are cool in a way that I can communicate them to people that don't have all of the kind of mathematical prerequisites to understand them. And it's just been kind of stewing away in the back of my head all that time until uh, 2011, I gave a talk at a conference called Ruby Manor in London, where I uh, I talked about the Lambda Calculus. And that went down pretty well. People seemed to enjoy it, much to my surprise, really. It was kind of, I talked about it mostly as a joke. It was sort of a troll, but people seemed to really enjoy it. I, I, I did a load of Lambda Calculus stuff in Ruby, and when I wrote it up and put it online with a video, a lot of people were excited about it. And as a result of that, I ended up having a conversation with O'Reilly, who were enthusiastic about turning it into a book. And then I disappeared into a hole for a year and typed. And then when I came out of the hole, I had a book. So that's pretty much the whole story. <laughs> That's I, I, awesome. awesome. There is a really great quote in the book that mirrors what you just said, uh, and it's in the introduction. It says, if you're interested in the mind-expanding parts of computer science that deal with programs, languages, and machines, but are discouraged by the mathematical language that is, that's often used to explain them, this book is for you. <laughs> and in my opinion, that is dead on about what this book is. It was really great. And That's then you follow it on page 22 with a full-page troll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which are the inference rules in a mathematical notation I can't even read. Yeah, I threw the book across the room at that point. <laughs> the num- yeah, the yeah, number d- of trolls in this book are great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, d- David, I, you, you just need your reading glasses for that page. <laughs> I thought it was really important to like ease people into it, you know, like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta start with the easy stuff and then like psych yourself up because it's going to get a lot more difficult later. I, I, I do want to point out, I mean, when I was reading it, it was really interesting because in a lot of ways it was like, well, I, I knew this stuff, but I never could have explained it this way. Um, right. I, I was a computer engineering uh, major in, in college. And so, you know, you kind of get that blend between engineering, math and computer science. And, uh, you know, the way that you kind of build up your, your proofs, um, you know, and, and in some cases it's like, look, there's a whole bunch of, um, uninteresting or, you know, whatever math that we're not going to do here, but, you know, just, just walking through it. And I, I remember, you know, designing finite automata in, in school and, and fighting through some of these concepts and, you know, and they give you the mathematical explanation of, of what it is and why and, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen as clear an explanation of what all of these things are and why they're important. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I mean, part of my, 
part of my hypothesis with this book. Um, I have like a whole, I have like a crazy wall where I've written down all of my, all of the ideas that I had in my head that made me want to write this book. And I was very careful to not actually put any of it into the book. Like I assume that anyone reading this book is not directly interested in what I'm trying to do. They just want to see the thing. But specifically, one of the things, one of the ideas I wanted to test out by writing this book is the idea that in order to explain anything of a reasonable level of complexity, you have to rely on something, right? If you're, if you're gonna, this is a thing that Richard Feynman would, would talk about that like, you have to, you have to have some kind of basis for understanding before you can, before you can explain something more complicated. And if you're gonna try to fully explain anything, even something quite simple, and you're gonna try and go all the way down to the bottom, then your, your explanation is just never gonna finish. So you have to have some kind of cutoff point. And it, it, it occurred to me that there are lots of things in computer science and specifically in computation theory that I think are really interesting that that are that always that are quite a small thing that sits on top of a gigantic tire of mathematics tower of mathematical prerequisites and actually a lot of those things uh, could just as easily be sat on top of something else which is the huge amount of intuition and knowledge that you have as a computer programmer that you may if you're self-taught then there are loads of things that you intuitively understand that maybe you've never even sat down and thought about but you've just internalized them by the process of learning to program computers and feeling what it's like to talk to a computer all the time and things so an example of that is um the proof of the uh, undecidability of the halting problem is usually presented in very mathematical language, and it depends on all kinds of, it depends on quite a high level of mathematical sophistication. It just assumes that you're happy with the idea of things like functions, mathematical functions. And it also assumes, so, so the proof of that usually talks about stuff in terms of girdle numberings. There's this idea that you can, um, you can effectively enumerate all of the computable functions. You can associate each function with a number, and that number kind of encodes the way that that function is computed and stuff like that. And that's mathematically quite a complicated idea to get your head around. And, and a lot of these proofs talk about uh, manipulations on these girdle number numbers of functions and stuff like that. And, and that's one of the things that when I was trying to explain it to undergraduates uh, a decade ago, I just sort of thought, well, this is essentially exactly the same idea as the source code of a program. Like you can, if you find someone who knows what source code is and knows that when you have a program, it's a thing that you can run. And when you run it, it does something. But before you run it, there's this thing called the source of the program, which is effectively just a giant number. It's a, a, you know, a sequence of bytes that's written on the disk. And I sort of realized that you could just refactor the whole explanation and, and kind of swap out all of the prerequisites that were mathematical and just sort of think, well, what are the things that a smart self-taught programmer is going to understand and how can I reconfigure this explanation in terms of stuff they already know so I hope that what happened that the experience that some people will have is that they read through this stuff and they hopefully never hit up against a wall of like seeing something that they just can't get because I think the problem with mathematical explanations of things is that if you're sitting there staring at the page and there's like a bunch of symbols there and you don't understand what they mean, then there's not really anything you can do about it. You just have to not understand it. Whereas my hope is that by explaining things with code and with ideas like, you know, not too sophisticated ideas, like the idea that a program has source code, it's something that firstly, you don't trip over in the first place because you just get it. And secondly, if there are details of the explanation that you trip over, then like, I've given you a bunch of code that you can run as well. So if it means that you have to stop and type in all of that code or clone it from GitHub and uh, poke at it for a few hours until, until you've built an intuition about it, then like hopefully you have, you have crossed that, you know, you've crossed that hurdle and now you can continue and enjoy the rest of the book. So I, I'm sort of hoping there aren't too many sticking points like that and that I've, I've managed to anticipate the, 
the moments where people are going to need that little nudge of familiarity of like, oh, you remember remember this thing that you recognize from all those times you've written computer programs? Well, now we're going to use that idea as part of something you haven't seen before, but hopefully you're not going to have to make too many mental leaps in order to understand it. I want to I wanna talk about what Tom just said there a little bit for our listeners, because it really turns out to be the thing in this book that, that makes it so cool. Is like, so you have this... Aside from the page of math troll that David brought up, which is just absolutely hilarious, that Tom just takes simple programs and teaches you these fundamental like concepts of computing using just simple programs layered on top of each other. And so literally you, you know, you look at this book and you think, Oh, it's going to get into discrete, finite, automaton, you know, is this something I can handle? And the answer is totally, yeah, you absolutely yeah. can. It, you can totally handle this. Okay, so, so, so there's a really brilliant thing that I saw in the book. And Tom, you know, you know there, there, there were a lot of brilliant things, but the thing that really made me, uh, like my first jaw-dropping moment, was when you were explaining how one of those finite automata worked. And the example that you showed was, oh, here's how you parse a, a formal language. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's like, so, so it, it was like you were tricking your readers into learning two complicated things by explaining one in terms of the other <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. It's like, it was great. I think you have to be, you have to be a certain kind of person to find that stuff interesting. Uh, but I'm hoping that like that enough of that kind of person will get to that part of the book and be like, yes, parsing. Yeah. I, I, I went to my I, I, keyboard so many times to, to write Ruby. I mean, the, and halfway through the book, I realized, son of a gun, you explained the concept of denotational semantics, which is where you explain one concept in another language. And then your whole book is explaining computer science in terms of Ruby code. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing that I thought was so interesting, too, was that, I mean, all of these things, all the way up through a Turing machine, the, they're all uh, theoretical constructs. Like they don't actually exist anywhere and they, they really can't, but you get this working code that basically simulates it. It was just, that was what blew my mind was it was just, yeah, these, you know, these are concepts that you understand. They're theoretical. You'll never see one out in the wild. And then it's like, yeah, but there's code that basically makes it happen. It's just like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so my freshman year of, of college, I'm going to Caltech taking CS 10 and, you know, being taught by Carver Mead, which was like the most amazing thing to have CS10 taught by someone like Carver. <laughs> and, and it, but he came out in one of the early classes with a physical Turing machine. You know, it, it was this like mechanical contraption that had a big board with, that looked uh, kind of like, a, you know, one of those old telephone, telephone switchboards where you would, you know, plug cables in to holes. And, you know, you know, and to connect spots on the board. And that was how you programmed the state machine, you know, you know, for the state transitions. And then there was this other contraption connected to it that was the, the tape that was this big, uh, like mechanical tray that would slide back and forth as the, as the head would come down and mechanically slide the section of the tape, uh, front or back. And, so, and he like programmed the thing to solve like, and then like reprogrammed it. And we got to watch the Turing machine execute different programs. Yeah, but have they ported the Unreal Engine to it yet? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually, um, Tom talks about this a little bit about how, you know, computation is pretty much just, you know, 
what can we work out with a pencil on a piece of paper? Only now we let computers do it and, and we can do a lot more. But the uh, there's lots of old examples. I think there's one using uh, matches and matchboxes. It was this old system built in, I want to say the 1930s, but don't quote me on that. I can't remember who did it either. Uh, but it was like a tic-tac-toe solver using uh, these matchboxes and stuff. Oh, sorry, Tom, that's knots and crosses. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, it was the solver just using these simple uh, bits. So, you know, computation was definitely happening uh, before computers and such. Yeah, okay. So, so the other awesome thing about this book is it's the first thing that I've read in years that uses the phrase, begs the question correctly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a special little thing for uh, for anyone who, any pedants in the audience. That was a little shout out. There's actually, like, I had to... <laughs> it, it's he nice actually has something to of. say to that. It's great. <laughs> you know, this, um, writing this book was extremely painful. I... I was I was really psyched about doing it. Like when I got the contract from O'Reilly, I was really happy and I was really had a huge amount of enthusiasm and energy for it because this is something I am genuinely really passionate about. And I could we literally could talk about this all day. So we're just going to have to cut it off at some point. But like I, I love this stuff. I, I love talking about it to anyone, regardless of whether they're interested. And I don't know. It's really difficult to not just keep talking about it and keep um, keep thinking about it and. But then once I got into the process of actually having to write a book about it, that completely reconfigured my understanding of it. And it completely changed my, re- my relationship with the material because it was, it just became my enemy. You know, every morning I would wake up and I'd go and sit in front of the text editor and there would be like the blinking cursor of death and I would not know what to write. And so to get myself through that, <laughs> that process, I just had to, I had to put a bunch of stuff in that made me feel like I, like I was enjoying myself and that people who were reading it would actually have a little moment of satisfaction. So that the little pieces like that where I'm like, yeah, I am actually going to use begs the question correctly. Like that gave me a tiny amount of satisfaction and I enjoyed imagining <laughs> that there was someone else who would get a tiny amount of satisfaction. And also in some, <laughs> some, some of the examples, like, some of the numbers I choose or some of the quotes that I choose to illustrate things or whatever are really not pursuant to the actual explanation. They're just about me. There are those little moments of me trying to retain my sanity. You know, it's like when you get a fortune cookie and you open it and it's got the help I'm trapped in a fortune cookie factory fortune inside. It's yeah. like that. The, uh, <laughs> the Carl Sagan quote brought a smile to my face. That's yes. my favorite Carl Sagan quote. Yes. yes. The, uh, and, and then, of course, there were pages 187 to 192. Right. Which is beyond amazing. Like, <laughs> I got there and just cracked up. It was great. Okay, so for, yep. so for for everyone playing along at home, it's basically you know over four pages of impenetrably unreadable lambda calculus. But but the thing, but and and the, like that was my first impression when I looked at it. But but Tom, I got to say that after having read through everything up to that point, I looked at I I can look at that code and I can actually understand some of what's going on there. Wow, that's great. Tom, are you aware that there's a typo on page 191? <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare. So firstly, don't you dare. <laughs> I Secondly, typed this program in and it was no fun. <laughs> well, that is that is an excellent troll. However, another coping strategy that I had as part of writing this book was that I just went off on massive displacement activities and 
one of the largest displacement activities was um, one of my favorite books when I was trying to learn sort of graduate computer science is a book called Types and Programming Languages by Benjamin Pierce. And it's this amazing textbook about type systems. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in this kind of thing. But like there has code in it that is evaluated. So all of the console sessions in that code, I think the output has been generated by a computer program, right? So he wrote this book and then he made sure that all of the output that you're seeing from the example programs in it was actually real. And I thought, wow, that's a good idea because it's fairly likely that when I'm writing this book, firstly, there's going to be a whole load of console sessions in it. And secondly, it's also likely that I'm going to want to go back and change the code that's in the book. And the prospect of going and like editing the the name of a class, for example, and then having to grep through all of the .book XML to find all of the places where I mentioned that class name and check that they were correct just filled me with a kind of Lovecraftian terror. So, <laughs> so what I did instead was the potentially much worse thing of writing a tool that would uh, that used Nakagiri to to slurp in all of the .book XML and then find all of the XML elements that. Fortunately, there is an X, there is a .book XML element that means this is code that is being typed in on a console so i could i could find with xpath i could find every single one of those and then i could eval all of that code and then capture the output into a into a string io object and then paste that in automatically after it in the book so i kind of had a i did have a cycle where well, as I was writing those chapters, I would just be typing in the the input to IRB, and then I would run it through this tool, and all of the output would automatically be inserted into the book. And then I would tinker with it a bit and insert white space and stuff, and also I could insert um, ellipses. And then when I reran it, it would it, it became a test suite, right? It would when there was already output there, it would just diff the output that it actually got against the output that was already inserted into the book. And if it was the same modulo white space uh, and ellipses and stuff, it would, it would, my tests would be green. So I know for a fact that all of the code in that book actually works. So you cannot <laughs> troll me. <laughs> and I, I must say like something like that would almost be required for this book oh, because yeah. the book was defining its own programming language by page 23. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's like keeping it all straight and stuff. There was so much room for error. And I was like incredibly surprised by, I mean, every time I read a programming book, I find some little thing, you know, that like, oh, that's wrong or whatever. But not this time. I like, I, I can't point to any of the code and say that's wrong, you know. Do you regret that the book, once it's in dead tree form, cannot modify its own code and is therefore decidable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very that's very disappointing. Um, in fact, there is there is a we're we're all laughing here, but there is a serious point to be made, which is that um, it is actually quite difficult to explain stuff non interactively. Um, and I I initially when I pitched this book to O'Reilly, I wrote a an outline, a chapter plan that had a load more stuff in it than is actually in the book, and a lot of that isn't in the book because when I sat down and tried to explain it, I just found that the constraints of a static text on the page book that you can't interact with was just too was not good enough to be able to build a meaningful explanation and, and yeah. like to in, to instantiate that problem i had a whole chapter that was just going to be about uh, after the programming with nothing chapter which is the stuff that introduces the lambda calculus it kind of 
uh, that, that chapter split into two parts. It's got the kind of impersonating the Lambda calculus in Ruby, which is just using procs uh, mm-hmm. and pretending that you're programming in the Lambda calculus and just using restraint to not rely on any other features of Ruby. And then there's mm-hmm. the second half of that chapter, which actually gives you a, an operational semantics for the Lambda calculus implemented in Ruby. So you can write Lambda calculus programs and then parse them and then evaluate their abstract syntax trees in Ruby. And that's all fine. But I wanted to have another chapter after that, which was about all of the different ways of evaluating the Lambda calculus, because in that chapter, I, I don't even talk about the fact that there are lots of different evaluation strategies for the Lambda calculus, and they all have different trade-offs, and they have different uh, different termination behavior and different normalization behavior, and all of these things that I think are super interesting. Mm-hmm. And I sat I sat down and I tried to write that chapter, and I just found that it was too hard to do it without being able to show stuff to show evaluation and like in various places in the book, I have one of the reasons why I wanted to show small step evaluation to Ruby programmers is that I thought that they perhaps had not seen programs evaluating by like gradually boiling down. You know, you just get used to the, the, when you run a Ruby program, you just get the output. You don't get to see all of the kind of intermediate stages. And so I thought it'd be fun to show that, but I don't, that was not really good enough to be able to, to explain, like, let's look at these four different ways of evaluating a lambda calculus expression. Let's see what their behavior over time is like, and let's see mm-hmm. how they differ and stuff like that. And and in an attempt to explain all of that, I sat down and made a little. Inter- I, I did it in um, in JavaScript and HTML. I made a little web page where I could type lambda calculus expressions in, and they would be parsed. And then I could click on different reduction expressions inside the lambda calculus expression and have it kind of do a trace down the page that showed you all of the steps of evaluation. And I was like, oh, this is excellent. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. What I want is for them to be able to click on stuff and sort of feel all of the different ways that you could, all of the different decisions you have to make as a person about what you're going to click on next. And then I could explain the evaluation strategies in terms of that, but I just couldn't find a way to freeze that onto the page. So I feel like, although um, it feels amazing to have got this book out of my system and to not have to think about it anymore, it still feels like there's a load of stuff like that that I wish I could have gone into more detail on that's still kind of lodged in my brain somewhere and I haven't quite got out into the world so I don't know what to do about that I think I might just uh, change career I, I like <laughs> the fact that you you kind of explain that there is that problem right and and you you come around you actually have the sentence of this sentence is false and you're explaining that that sentence refers to itself that you you can't have that paradox without the word this in that right. sentence the self-referentiality and I could see how, yeah, trying to scale that up might be a little tricky. I mean, having a chapter that ends with, by the way, this chapter is, is false, that might be too much of a troll. <laughs> I want to kind of uh, touch on what you two are talking about right there. That I, I'm worried that people listening to this episode are thinking, oh, they said this book is super readable, and now they just keep using words like lambda calculus. Yeah. But it, it's so hard to convey how understandable he made these topics. Like... The halting problem is a great example. Tom talked earlier about how it's usually explained with this horrible, horrible math, and it's very, very complicated. Yeah. He wrote a simple program that basically takes the input of some program and then returns if it halts or it doesn't halt. And so it's like totally something you can understand. And he walks you through it step by step. It's super easy. And then once you get that far, it's so easy to see why that actually can't work in every case. And then he walks you through, you know, step by step, why it can't work in every case. So you gain this fundamental understanding of the halting problem and by extension what computers cannot do using just the most straightforward, no math, 
it, you can see it right there, why it can't work uh, thing. And that, I just cannot stress enough, is what makes this book amazing. Yeah, he I, also, in the same in the same manner, proved that he will never be a good professor in a, at a college because he explained <laughs> it so well. I want to second James's comment that we're, we're talking big stuff here, but this book literally got inside my head. Um, I had a dream two nights ago. Literally? Which, did it, did it I, fit? Oh, I, oh, that's true. The book literally got inside my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. The book figuratively got in my head. The knowledge from the book literally got inside my head in unexpected oh. ways. Because I had a dream that woke me up laughing because I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote a halting checker that trapped control C and returned. Yes, it halts. <laughs> you know, so you, you run it and it runs forever. And eventually you say, no, okay, just kill this program. And, and then the program says, yes, it halts. And I, I just, you know, SIGINT return. Yes. And I, I, it woke me up laughing. Wow. And yeah. So uh, there is a downside to this book. I, I'll give a totally straightforward downside. It, that I read tons of programming books, uh, especially for this podcast. We read one all the time. And I'm to the point where I've read enough of them that I can just fly through them for the most part. Yeah. Um, and this book is not that. No. I picked it up and like 20 pages into it, I mean, I slowed to a crawl because I realized, oh, I'm going to have to think here and I'm going to have to work through this. This is probably one of the most best read with your text editor open books. You know, you, you will want to be putting some stuff into IRB and, and playing with it and things like that. And you, you actually will be gaining this understanding. And I think all of us rogues ran into it because, you know, we're terrible procrastinators and we're like, Oh, a week before the book club episode, we should fire it up. But we all kind of got into it a little early and then started giving each other warning flags. Mayday, you cannot read this in two days. <laughs> you know, kind, of, yeah. kind of thing. And, um, it's very true. Like, I literally had to ask my wife, uh, I just need, like, a week off so I can sit down with this book and figure it out. And uh, and that really um, is pretty much what it takes. But it's so worth it and, like, engaging. You, you're you having so much fun when you're playing with it and your editor yeah. and stuff like that. That's what makes it awesome. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad you feel like that because it was that – it was, uh, I'm ripping myself because I already said this, but it was that kind of interactive element to it that I felt was really important. Like I, I didn't want people to feel that they had to hang on every word that I was writing because quite a lot of the time, these ideas are fundamentally difficult to explain concisely in English because there are so many things you're trying to refer to. Like I was, again, literally having problems with pronouns and like I was writing sentences where I wanted there to be like three different thises that I could refer to and it was just it can you can get tangled up in knots and a lot of me writing this book was just constantly writing and then deleting paragraphs that were just gibberish and in the end my solution to that problem was just to relax a little bit and think well I will just I'll just type what I want to say like as if if I was just talking to someone in the pub and they said so you know what's the big deal about the lambda calculus or you know what is abstract interpretation or what is the halting problem or whatever and so I just wrote what I would like to say in as conversational a style as I was able to write it and then just allowed the the code to kind of be the crutch that I was leaning on and whether that's good or bad is probably a matter of opinion but I was hoping that by having all of that code there you could 
because different people will have different difficulties with different topics. And I'm, I'm kind of aware that probably nobody will read this book and not already know something in there. Like everyone who has done any computer science will have, or even someone who is just a Rails programmer and who has worked on an, a medium-sized web app will probably know about state machines, for example. So like those people are going to be able to breeze through that stuff. And so for me to really laboriously explain that in lots of detail would probably just be quite boring. So I was trying to go through it as quickly and I suppose as like James is saying as densely as possible and just throwing out the code there and and again the subtext on my crazy wall was like well if you hit a page where you feel like you're not really getting it then just stop there fire up your text editor and like just play around until you feel yeah. confident enough to continue yeah yeah the, the- yeah that's awesome because like in the the lambda calculus example if you sit down and work through that in IRB it will be there's no way you can get to the other side of that and not understand recursion. Yeah. Like if you don't get recursion, that that is the example for you. Like that will do it, you know? I, I still have no idea what the S combinator is though. <laughs> <laughs> That's another book. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, I just, the, the thing that I think is so interesting though is that just with my background, I keep bringing this up, but like all of my computer science classes in, in college, they just hand waved over this stuff. And, right. and it was the yeah. engineering classes that were the ones that really hit home on a lot of this stuff, because this is how you think about really designing the machines to handle these problems. And so, um, it, it was just fascinating to me to get to read through it and, and see it from, from the perspective of software. And it really did cement a lot of the stuff that I didn't understand for me. Right. And I think there is, I think there is interesting stuff there of practical value. I mean, I, I'm, I'm conscious that there is not very much practical value in this book other than like satisfying the curiosity of people who are interested in these things. But I think there are. I strongly disagree. Okay. Well, what I was going to say is that the, um, so things like regular expressions, like if you say to someone who is a self-taught Ruby programmer, like, do you understand how regular expressions work? They'll be like, right. yeah, sure. You've got, you've got your dot and you've got your asterisk and you've got your question mark. Yeah. And then you're like, well, I'm going to stop you there because have you ever thought about how they actually work? Like, how would you implement this? Uh, like, what's going on there? And so I, that was one of the places where I wanted to, and I suppose with the parsing stuff and, and the, the, the programming language semantics as well, actually, I just wanted to, like, I wanted to scratch at these little things in people's understanding where it's like, well, you're using this stuff all the time. Like, you're all, you write computer programs every day or you use regular expressions every day or you, you know, you use parsers every day without even thinking about it but like what is actually going on there if i if i put you in a you know an interrogation situation like and said to you can you explain to me what's going on here like where would your explanation bottom out at just hand waving and shrugging and i i just really wanted to just kind of needle those points a little bit and whether that i mean it sounds like an excellent retort is coming back about what the practical value of that is but for me it's for for me the real value of this stuff is that like this is what keeps me sane and what makes me excited about being a programmer because the reality of being when you work as a computer programmer it's brilliant because effectively someone is paying you to do the thing that well in my case what i would be doing anyway so it feels like an amazing uh, an amazing hack to actually have people who are prepared to give you money but the consequence of that is that you end up doing a lot of stuff which in the day to day is maybe not that fascinating you know maybe you're building another cms in rails or whatever and it's tempting to kind of 
to let your shoulders droop a bit and to sort of say, oh, you know, man, it's another day at the office and I'm just kind of hacking away like a code monkey. But it's the fact that I have this kind of slightly unhealthy fascination with the way it all works and the way it all fits together and like the interface between this stuff and what is go- like the metaphysical aspect of what's going on in the universe. Like that's what keeps me excited. And that's why I really love writing computer programs. And it's really important for me to be able to remind myself like, and I think I sort of say this right at the end of the book as well. Like you're, you're kind of doing magic amazing magic stuff and it's really easy to forget how magical and amazing this stuff is so if you just sit down and think about it and you can rediscover this kind of awe of how amazing all of this you know that this is possible even and that you can that you can make a machine that will do whatever you want it to do like it's super exciting and that's that's what i want to try and retain a little bit of as i get older and uh, more jaded can i ask you a question that i think will show you the practical value of this book sure Okay, so it's it's kind of a long question, but it, it's because and it's going to be a complicated answer. Um, not that uh, it's been hard to get words out of you, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I need you for the readers to give a short explanation of decidability and undecidability. And then here's the question: How much does undecidability correlate with technical debt and our in- inability to understand or test code? Wow. Because that was a huge takeaway for me from this book. Wow. Okay. My brain is churning. So, <laughs> so a, a, sim, a short explanation of decidability. So if, if th- think about a sub cl- subset of all the problems we might want to solve with computers. There are certain kinds of problems which are just called decision problems. And a decision problem is where we just w- want to ask a computer a question to which the answer is yes or no. So this is like a, like a, a predicate method that you would write in Ruby, right? You want to know, you know, is this, uh, is this, it, it, Read in an integer and tell me, is it even yes or no? So these are the, 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 these problems are called decision problems. And decidability is the issue of whether one of these decision problems is effectively always answerable. So that particular question of whether a number is even is decidable because for any number that you feed into a computer, it's possible. Uh, I'm being extremely vague here, but you can write a, you can write a program in Ruby that will tell you whether a number is even or not, right? And so the, that decision problem is decidable. I go into some detail in the book to explain that there are other kinds of problems that you, that are not decidable in that way. And some of those problems to, to get onto the, the actual substance of your question. Some of those problems are unfortunately problems that we would really like to be decidable. So this is something that, again, was never quite, when you read textbooks about computation theory, I feel like they, they go 90% of the way to the exciting point, right? And the 90% is like, here's a load of mathematical prerequisites. We're going to talk about girdle numbering and we're going to talk about, uh, girdles first and second incompleteness theorem and all of this stuff and formal logics and arithmetic and all of this kind of stuff. And you, you get this amazing result at the end about the existence of, uh, undecidable problems. And then they kind of stop as if you get it now. Like, okay, we've showed you a mathematical result. And so there you have it. And I think even when people are taught this in a more practical setting, people who do understand, you know, how the halting problem applies to computer programs, I, I expect if you, if you were to grab a random Ruby program and say, can you summarize, you know, what, what's the deal with the halting problem? What, what does it mean that the halting problem is undecidable? They'll probably say, well, you can't write a computer program that will tell you for sure whether another computer program is ever going to finish executing or not. And you're like, well, okay, but so what? What's the last step of this? Like, why do we care? Like, is, is that just a stupid, academic result like it doesn't sound like something that's going to have any consequences for me like you know i don't write you know i write uh web interfaces to databases i do not write programs that uh tell me whether other programs are ever going to halt or not right so it's very easy to get kind of 
to get into this mindset of like, even if you've understood it, maybe you haven't internalized the consequences of it. And one of the things that I try in a small way to explain in the book is that this is actually massively relevant. And this is like why our lives are so painful because the halting problem, there are lots of other problems that are reducible to the halting problem that like we really want to be able to solve. So things like, does this program satisfy its specification? Does this program have any bugs in it? Does this program make any private API calls? You know, like all of these kinds of things that us or Apple or someone else in the world might want to tell, you know, basically, and this is the depressing conclusion that I come to in that chapter on decidability is that like mm -hmm. basically anything that you want to know that is interesting about a computer program in the limit is like, or rather in general is undecidable. And it may well be the case that in, a, in the vast majority of cases, it actually is decidable. But there's always going to be this kind of bit of grit. There's always going to be this fly in the ointment, which is like there are always going to be programs that you want to ask questions about for which these, pro these, these decision problems are not answerable. And so even if you think you have written a program that can tell me whether my program is going to run out of memory or whether it's going to seg full or whether it's, you know, whether it writes to, whether it makes a particular API call or not, I will always be able to cook, cook up a program that when I feed it to your decider, it gives the wrong answer. And that's yeah, pretty yeah. depressing. So, so, so this is sort of the, um, the quantum uncertainty equivalent in computation. It's, you know, you know, you do quantum mechanics. You're like, okay, I can't actually know the universe down to the specifics of everything. Right. And yeah. So the, the, there's actually, I think, um, you know, like what what you were saying was like I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the recording several times to, to, <laughs> to, to, to actually digest everything you just said. But the, sorry, the, like you said, there's some real world implications, and I think that understanding that is really valuable. I remember early in my career interviewing at a company that was um, building what they used to call specification systems, and you know, for Ruby developers, you know, we use you know Test Unit or RSpec to write tests to tell us something about how our code is operating. And, you know, if we've done a good job, then we have some confidence that we know what's going on in our code and that it's behaving correctly for some definition of correct. And people who, who focus on these ways to describe code get, I think, you know, they, they, they end up, um, you know, sort of in this, uh, you know, black hole of navel gazing where, where it's like, okay, I just keep you know, making my specifications more and more powerful to describe what's going on in the code. And then somebody has the bright idea of, well, if my specification language is so powerful that I can describe everything that's going on in my code, after I've written the specifications, I could use that to generate the code or right. I could just, or I could just execute the specifications. And, and then you're back where you started mm -hmm. is the problem. <laughs> and, and, you know, because now you have a specification system that is, you know, it's, it's sort of the Turing equivalence going on there where right. the specification has all of the power of the, of the language that it's describing, you know, which means that it has, you know, all the same limitations, you know, if you look at it the other way. And so, yeah. And, and then you run into all the same problems of like, well, how do you prove that the specification system, you know, the specifications you wrote are correct? Yeah, I think I think there are a load of, again, going back to my crazy wall, I think there are a load of points that I wanted to bring out, which are sort of maybe to do with preconceptions that people have, or like misconceptions, I suppose, is what I mean, um, about what's possible and what's worthwhile. So I mean, yeah, so one of them is there are 
a large number of undecidable problems concerned with what programs are going to do. And like, this is, this is fundamentally important that people who work with computers have some understanding of this and understand the scope of the problem as well, that they don't think it's only writing programs that tell you whether other programs halt that is the problem, that actually that is the crack through which a million other problems are leaking all the time, yeah. right? And so it's, this is why it's important for engineering students to understand the laws of thermodynamics so they don't spend their whole career trying to build perpetual motion machines, right? If you can just be sat down and explained in a way that convinces you that you cannot build a perpetual motion machine, then like you have just freed yourself from a whole load of pain. You don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And, and the, you know, some other things I wanted to bring out, and again, I don't think I did it particularly well or certainly not explicitly, was just that like we spend a lot of time particularly in the Ruby community and in, in related communities, kind of worrying about our tools and, and, and in some cases arguing over, you know, it, what's better, you know, is Python better than Ruby or whatever? And, and, you know, obviously some programming languages are more powerful than other programming languages. And we have these kind of twin ideas that firstly, in order to do useful computational work, you have to have a complex system that is like difficult to learn and difficult to understand that you can like, and a gravy train that you can get on and conferences that you can go to. Like, that's what computation means. And secondly, that there are at different levels on that, on that spectrum, there are like more complicated and more powerful programming languages. And obviously, in some ways, that is true. And, and it depends on your definition of power and stuff like that. But I also really wanted to kind of, I wanted to pour water on that a little bit. And, and in having that chapter that was about the Lambda calculus and also the chapter about universal systems, which was the one of the two things I really wanted to write about. Like the whole book is basically a giant yak shaving exercise for me to be able to talk about universality and, and how, you know, how pervasive it is and how, how little it depends on. So I really wanted to write that stuff about cyclic tag systems and rule 110 and, and stuff like that because I, and, and, and the SKI calculus and stuff. I just wanted to show like how simple these systems can be and still get full blown, you know, exactly as much power as you get from your programming language or, or from Haskell or from whatever, whatever awesome programming language it is that you think is the best programming language. And, and at the same time sort of wanted to slightly deflate this idea that like, it, it massively matters which language you choose or rather that your reasons for choosing a programming language needs to be wider than just like what computations is it capable of doing and you need to pay attention to things like what's the community like and how good are the podcasts and you know how good is the ecosystem of, of tools and libraries available for this language because ultimately that's all you're deciding on or like how much do I like the syntax because none of this stuff really matters particularly to the computer it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter whether rails is implemented in ruby or implemented as the input to a cyclic tag system like it can perform the same calculations possibly slightly slower but still you know you could you've got the same capability there and actually that capability does not rest on anything very complicated like when you look at that stuff in the universality chapter and you see just how simple some of those systems are like that is a thing that blew my mind when I first learned that it was possible to embed a Turing machine in something that's like radically simpler than a Turing machine. That was a real eye opener for me. And it makes me feel differently about programming computers and choosing languages and engaging in those kinds of unproductive arguments with people, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of unproductive arguments, the, um, <laughs> the, 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 yeah, you, you said the, um, what was it? The cyclic tag system. Yeah. I, I think that blew my mind more than, than any of the other stuff that I read mm. that, that, yeah, there was, it, it, well, okay. Actually, IOTA blew my mind more than the cyclic tag system. Right. <laughs> but, right. But the, it, 
It, yeah, they're both very similar in that they really reduce this complex system into something that is probably of equal complexity, but it's built of simpler and simpler parts. Right. And and the the book seemed like it was a walk down the path towards like shifting complexity around. You know, you, you say, okay, great. We're going to come down to the smallest pieces that we can define that interact in, in ways that will create these results. And so, so it's like, I looked at, at that IOTA combinator and, and that, you know, IOTA language based on it. And I was like, where the hell does the complexity live in these right. programs? Because if you only have, I guess IOTA has two things. There's the, you know, there's uh, basically whether you're like pushing or popping into the parentheses stack. And yeah. so, you know, it's like, okay, do I have, you know, am I, you know, you know, applying the IOTA to another IOTA or, or coming out of that application? Right. And that's all the information that you have to encode your program is that relationship between successive, you know, applications of IOTAs. And that seemed really similar to the cyclic tag system to me. And that, you know, you really only got like, you know, what one bit of information that you're using at each at each place. Yeah, but it was just like, okay, so that's really simple. But how do you start with with pieces that are that simple? And then it's just the arranging of them that you get all the complexity that you know does all the magic. I think it's really cool that you said that. I'm, I'm I'm really happy that you said that because this is again something that I didn't call out explicitly. What I wanted people to feel was that as you go down and you get to those simpler and simpler systems, you kind of get to this point where they become more abstract in a way, and you get to the point where you're having to think more and more about the encoding of things. And and you know, in the sense that when you sit down and write a Ruby program or whatever, that the Ruby interpreter is trying very, very hard, and there's a lot of complexity involved for it to talk to you in something which is, in the grand scheme of things, extremely close to human language. Like, the stuff that you're having to type and the results that you see have been, like, extensively massaged for your personal convenience, right? And that is why the Ruby interpreter is like a large and complicated piece of software, because the whole thing is designed to fit the human mind. And... It, as you the 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 further down you go in, in that journey that down that path towards simpler and simpler systems you realize that what you're doing is uncovering the fact that 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 is going on that actually when you get to these simpler and simpler systems and you look at things like i mean even the lambda calculus is more than most people even want to look at but like the lambda calculus is a very sophisticated programming language in that it's got something that intuitively we understand like it's based on the notion of a, of a function Function abstraction and function, function application are like ideas that we have had, if effectively ideas from mathematics. And we are still reasonably comfortable with that. Like once you've sat down and you've figured out how the church encodings of the natural numbers and pairs and lists and all of the data structures you might want work, you can kind of, in a painful way, you can program in it. And especially if you do what I do in the programming nothing chapter, which is like assign things to constants and say, well, I'm just going to have this giant lambda calculus expression that means increment. Then like you are progressively recovering a language, which is not massively different to Ruby. But when you get into those other systems like the, the the calculi that I show and cyclic tag systems, like they just become almost irretrievably alien, right? They they don't have anything, they don't have any affordances in them that allow you to relax and feel comfortable and feel like you're being catered to as a human brain. Like it's just there's something going on here, and you can't 
quite see what's going on and it's not making any attempts to help you understand what's going on. But that doesn't fundamentally alter the fact that it's doing useful stuff. It's just that it's no longer doing useful stuff in a way that's convenient for you. It's all of that incidental complexity about accommodating your preferences and your biases as a a, a warm-blooded mammal are no longer there. And now there's just some kind of quite frightening thing happening where you can see these, you know, when you run those things in, in IRB and you can see the IOTA expressions kind of expanding and contracting and getting massive and then getting tiny again and things are kind of boiling and combining and you get the answer at the end, you're just like, this is entirely outside of my experience as a human being, as a computer programmer. Like there's something going on here that isn't for me, that's kind of built into the universe or built into mathematics or something. And it's, um, it's, it's for me, it was the realization that that is what Ruby and other user friendly languages are tapping into. It's like, there's something, you know, it's like the, the force or whatever. There's something going on in the universe <laughs> and we can build this gigantic, I think there's a bit in the book where I talk about this sort of tower of abstractions and sort of say that a computer is a device for kind of maintaining this gigantic, precarious tower of abstractions that allow us to, right at the very bottom of that tower is this kind of raw power of computation happening in the universe. And then we have layers and layers of interpretation and encoding, which when we sort of, when we layer those high enough, we get to something at the top where the encodings of things and the representations of things and the abstractions that things are expressed with are ones that we're totally comfortable with. And it's just as you drill further down that stack, things get like weirder and weirder until you get to the point where it's really not clear what's happening. So I would hate to the, my biggest fear with this book is that people are going to think that I'm some kind of expert on computation and they're going to ask me like really deep philosophical questions about what computation is and how computation works and stuff. Cause I've just got literally no idea. I haven't got a clue what's going on. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's my fascination with the question of what the hell is going on that made me want to write a book about it. But I'm not any, I'm not any closer to an answer. If anything, I'm more confused than I was when I started. So sorry about that. So, so, so I have a real brain melting awesome. question for, question for you. And that's, you know, have you considered that the human ability to understand computation sort of in the realm that you describe in your book is at all related to the fact that we are somehow based on these strands of DNA that have the, these enzymes that can run up and down them and basically translate them into other strands of similar stuff? So it's like a DNA strand is kind of like a Turing machine tape. Yeah, it is. And that's right. And, and, and you and you have these molecules that run up and down them and change the encoding and turn them into RNA and, and things like that. And people have built computers or like very similar, very simple computational devices out of DNA and enzymes. And actually, I think that, you know, people talk about the brain as being the most powerful computational device known to man. I, D, at some level, DNA is an incredibly powerful computational device. And the amount of stuff that we would have to simulate to like actually get all of the capabilities of DNA and how it how it encodes and transforms information is huge. So, but right. I, but it's just like you know, there's this model of computation you know exhibited by DNA, and what we have with the Turing machine isn't all that different from that. <laughs> no, that's 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 absolutely true. And I mean, I think this is another example of of a thing that everyone kind of knows. Like everyone who is everyone who has a basic education knows about DNA and knows a little bit about how it's encoded and you know the the very very rough details of what's going on there but and i learned that stuff when i was a kid but it was a very lengthy process for me to 
sort of ingest that information properly and assimilate it and realize there was definitely a moment where I was like, hold on, like humans are digital, right? Where it's actually just because it's not binary doesn't mean it's not digital. Like, you know, humans are not represented in an analog way. You know, they're in, inside an egg, there is not a tiny human waiting to grow. Like that is not how it works. There is actually a sequence of instructions that are written in a, like a, a four digit code that, in, that, encodes all of the information necessary and that is a program which is going to evaluate on a biological computer and the side effect of the evaluation is going to be like building a body and there's going to be a human being and like that that is kind of crazy and i i don't it might be it might be overreaching to say that that is inherently related to our ability to understand or not understand these things but i think that they're is something going on, which is that we are, well, I'm in danger of venturing into non-scientific territory here. But my personal opinion is that we are just like hot, wet Turing machines, right? That, that effectively what is going on in your brain constitutes a, an astronomically complex, ongoing, massively parallel computation that is very difficult to understand. And like, I personally, I don't have very much faith that we're ever going to be able to comprehensively understand it like to the extent that it's possible to get a grip on that it might just be if you could completely reproduce the computational behavior of a brain then maybe you would get something that works like a brain but whether you're any closer to actually understanding how it works i i don't know but that's one of the things that i think when i've talked about this undecidability stuff before and i've i, I spoke at the scottish ruby conference about the uh, about the undecidability of the halting problem and, and, and stuff like that. Um, there were definitely people who came up to me afterwards and they were like, what does this mean? Like, what are you talking about? Like, if, if my brain is just a computer and computers are limited in what they're able to do, then like, what does that mean for me? So I think people, there are people who are keen or maybe not keen, maybe the opposite of keen, but like they perceive that there is a connection between all of this stuff and like what is actually going on biologically and uh, psychologically, I suppose, with humans. And like, I am singularly unqualified to address any of those questions. Like, I don't, obviously, like nobody, nobody knows the answer to any of those things. Nobody really understands how the brain works. That question is very far from being settled. But like, it seems to me that the balance of evidence is such that it's quite likely <laughs> that what's going on obviously as you say in the, in the cells of our body, I don't think there's very much dispute that like, yeah, that is just, digital computation that is being evaluated on a on a on a wet computer and it feels to me as though that's what's going on in our skulls as well and i don't really know how to process that or what the consequences of that are and i just want to cry now i don't know i don't know about you but my brain is non-deterministic <laughs> yeah sure it is <laughs> it definitely feels like that, but, uh, actually, I was gonna ask you that. Um, why is it that I as a human being can look at a program that effectively, that it effectively boils down to this sentence is false? How come I can look at a program like that and, and decide that it is undecidable when a Turing machine can't? Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, so what you're talking about there is, you're talking about having a specific program in front of you and making mm -hmm. a decision about whether that program will halt or not. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, you're able to do that for particular inputs. Uh, uh, one of the, okay. One With of the, the general case, I can't. 
Yeah, so so there are two reasons for that, and I kind of well, well, here are two examples of reasons for that, and one of them is the I think in the book I talk about uh, talk about the the Goldback conjecture, right? That you can because you can encode arithmetic questions about arithmetic as a computer program, then any question in arithmetic can be expressed as a decision problem, you know, for a computer to solve, and there are decision problems. You know the, the the Goldback conjecture. We don't know the answer, and so even if you know, you okay. would have to be. Tom, sorry. Tom, Tom, for for people who haven't read your book yet, d- uh, can you define the Goldback conjecture for us? By the way, it's one of my favorite conjectures. Okay, <laughs> sure. So the idea of the Goldback conjecture is, uh, it's it's sort of this question of, the question is about whether every even number can be expressed as the sum of two prime numbers. So every every even number greater than two. So is is there any even number that cannot be expressed as a sum of two prime numbers essentially? So if you think like four is two plus two and six is three plus three plus three and eight is three plus five and ten is three plus seven and so on. And you can keep going. And if you look at all of the even numbers, um you can check whether or not they, you know, just by looking at all of the prime numbers that are less than that number and adding them together and seeing if they make that even number, you can figure out whether there are two prime numbers that add together to make it. And it turns out empirically that, you know, every even number that we've checked this for, that is the case. I can't remember exactly how many we've checked. Is I think it's up to, it might be four quintillion, four times it's, 10. To, is that right? It's a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, yeah. A, a computer has sat down and exhaustively checked this for, you know, a large number of even numbers. And so just based on the weight of evidence, it certainly seems like every even number greater than two is expressible as the sum of two prime numbers. But we don't actually have a proof that this is the case. And it, that's quite... Black, a, uh, it's the black swan thing. All we've right. seen so far are white swans, but that doesn't mean there's no black swan, right? Sure. So maybe there's an astronomically large even number that is in fact not the sum of two primes. And we don't have conclusive proof that that prime number doesn't exist. And that's really frustrating because it's very easy to, and I go through this in the book, it's very easy to write a program that checks this. So you can write a program that sits there checking the Goldback conjecture for specific cases, you know, checking it for four and then for six and then for eight and seeing whether there are two prime numbers that can add together to make that even number. And that can keep going for as long as you like. And if you if you set up that program such that it will finish if it ever finds an even number that is not the sum of two primes and it keeps going forever, you know, modulo available RAM and stuff on the computer, it'll keep going forever if it never finds a, an even number uh, that isn't the sum of two primes, then you've got yourself a program whose halting behavior is intimately connected to a problem in mathematics that we don't know the answer to. So for that specific program, without getting into anything complicated or self-referential or metaphysical, I can just say, well, like, if you look at that program, you can't tell me whether that's ever going to halt or not, just because right. it's a difficult question. But even beyond that, the the stuff to do with the halting problem is not really related to that, or at least that's not how it's expressed. It's It's more in terms of you can always... If you give me a program that you think decides the halting problem, I can use the source code of that program to build a new program that your program gives the wrong answer to. So there's a, there's a sort of self-referentiality thing, which is that, okay, you give me your candidate halting checker, and then I, I, there's a very simple transformation I can go through with that program to generate a program that will break your program. And the, the analog of that for the question that you're asking is you think that your brain is able to so say you you think that your brain is able to decide the halting problem mm-hmm. in order in order for me to produce the canonical program 
that you can't decide that for. I would need the source code of your brain. And right now, we don't know how to extract the source code of someone's brain. And maybe at some point in the future, when the brain is comprehensively understood, we will actually be, we will actually be able to do that. And so that, I think that that's maybe the missing step is the realization mm -hmm. that whatever the program is that you're running in your mind to make that decision, that is, Again, uh, this is a non-scientific claim, but I claim that that's something that in principle it is possible to write down in a way that we could feed that into your brain. And then I could, I could do the same transformation on that program and you wouldn't be able to give the right answer. So I don't know if that makes it clearer or less clear, but that's, no, that's it, my answer. It, it does. Um, the, the related question that I had was, can a Turing machine with an infinite tape always decide a Turing machine with a finite tape? And it sounds like the answer is yes. Yeah, if you've got a Turing machine with a finite tape, then that's just a finite state machine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if if you've got a finite tape, then there are by definition a finite number of states that that Turing machine could be in. So, I mean, the the intuitively the problem with the halting problem is that you never know whether the Turing machine is going to keep going forever. You yeah. can't um so so with finite state machines or with push down automata, you can kind of see when they get when they go into a loop. Particularly, yeah. it's easy to see with a finite state machine because all of the only state that it has is what, you know, this is getting a bit, I'm tripping over words again, but like what state it's in. If it's in state one or state two or state three or whatever. And you can always see when you've, when you're back in a state that you've already been in and the remaining input is the same as it was, you can say, well, this is, I've been in this situation before. So I can see that this is just going to repeat over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just going to be stuck in an infinite loop. But with a Turing machine, you can't do that because in general, you can't do that because for all you know, it could keep, it, it can keep discovering new configurations that you haven't yeah. seen before. The tape can keep, the contents on the tape can keep getting longer and longer and you can, it can keep generating new configurations, combinations mm -hmm. of what state it's in and what's on the tape that you have not already seen. If you've got a finite tape, then actually the number of possible configurations that the machine can be in is, is finite. And so if you have been watching a Turing machine and you have seen it, write all possible contents onto the tape and go into all possible states that it could be in, then eventually it's going to get to a point where it is back somewhere that you have seen it before. It's either going to stop or it's going to end up in a state that you've seen it be in before. And in that case, you will know that it's going to just keep repeating forever because once it gets back mm -hmm. to a state it's already been in, it's just going to do exactly what you've already seen it do. So yeah, um, a, a Turing machine with a finite tape is, you know, the halting problem is decidable for those, uh, mm -hmm. but not if the tape is infinite or semi-infinite. Like if the, t right. the, tape, the tape doesn't have to extend infinitely in both directions it can be it can have a have a beginning and extend infinitely mm -hmm. off into the distance and that's still uh, still undecidable if the you tape is is infinite it can always by definition include everything you've seen so far plus the inverter at the end that makes the halting problem undecidable right tom what do you think that um the impact of quantum computing has on this sort of decidability problem that's quite a, so firstly, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Secondly, my understanding based on what I've read from people who are qualified to answer that question, like, um, this guy called Scott Aronson who writes about this stuff a lot. Um, and he's amazing. So if you're interested in that question, you should go and read what Scott Aronson's written. He, um, he just wrote a book about it, which is really fascinating, but I, it seems as though the consensus is that quantum computing does not fundamentally alter the situation that quantum computing is all about complexity theory and the efficiency with which computations can be performed right like if you're talking about mainstream quantum computing it's just about being able to do complex stuff quicker basically um, and it doesn't fundamentally change 
what is computable. Now, there are, there are plenty of people who disagree with that. And that's why I'm a bit hesitant to even answer the question that like, are there are a lot of people and a lot of extremely smart people, possibly including, um, Roger Penrose, who wrote a whole book about this, who, who feel that there is something ineffable about quantum mechanics that means that there is room for extra work to be done that there are things that and this is this is as far as i understand it again i'm not an expert but fundamentally this is the argument about the about the nature of the brain like is it is it possible to just build a computer that's made out of transistors that works like a brain and some people would say no it's not possible because there is stuff going on in the brain that is to do with you know hand wavy quantum mechanical stuff that you just can't reproduce reliably on a deterministic you know on a turing machine basically i i don't know how to decide that question. I mean, obviously, if someone could present an existence proof by actually building a quantum computer that can do stuff that, that can, that can decide the halting problem, that would be pretty impressive, right? And we would know conclusively. But I, as far as I know, the jury is out on it. And my layman's intuition about it is that it probably doesn't fundamentally alter the situation, but uh, I know nothing. I want to take it back down a little and ask you a, an easy question so I can disagree with your answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> does this book affect my day-to-day -day rails programming well that's a good question probably not i mean other than in the sense that i explained earlier which is that it gives you something to hold on to like when you're when you're sitting there and you're banging your head against the asset pipeline for the 10th time this week and you just you just you're about to rage quit and you're just like I don't enjoy this anymore. Like, this is something that I got into. I mean, this is speaking for myself, but like, I have those days where I'm like, this is something that I got into because it's my passion. Like, I, I wanted to program computers from a young age because I found it exciting and fun. And now it is not exciting and fun anymore because I hate the asset pipeline and I just want to throw my computer in a bin and storm out and just not work with computers anymore. And so f for me, that's really the practical value. And as far as there is any practical value is that like, I, I hope that it helps people to feel like they're having fun and that they're doing something cool when they write computer programs, because I still do feel like that. I mean, I've been writing computer programs for a long time. And when I have those days where I'm like, why am I even doing this? I just stare out the window and think about how excellent and cool it all is. And then that gives me a little kick of enthusiasm that allows me to continue configuring the asset pipeline, right? It's just like, I, I don't know, that is not a convincing answer to your question. But certainly, I don't think there's anything in the book that is necessarily going to make your Rails code any better there are a couple of practical things in it like i think it i think it is worthwhile to know how regular expressions work i think it's probably worthwhile to know how parsers work i think it's worthwhile to be at least peripherally aware of type systems and abstract interpretation because those are cool ideas that have maybe not for ruby programmers but if you are interested in programming languages that have static type systems it's good to know about them and even if you never touch one of them it's nice for that to be an informed decision rather than just being based on well type systems are just like a load of administrative overhead that i that i'm not interested in like whereas if you could actually if you're dismissing them for the right reasons, then that's absolutely fine. But if you're just dismissing them as alien and weird, then that seems like a shame because static type systems are amazing and like incredibly powerful and incredibly interesting. And so like maybe you should go and learn Haskell or at least maybe you should go and learn Java or some or Scala or something and like at least expose yourself to these ideas. So I think it's all a little bit, it's a load of things that are in distant orbit around 
uh, practical value. It's just that none of them, every so often one of them comes in for a close approach, like a comet, but none of them ever like <laughs> directly crash land on the planet of relevance. So I'm sorry about that, but I hope that the overall kind of constellation of ideas is interesting to look at and kind of aesthetically pleasing and like helps people to want to keep doing cool stuff. I, that's what I was hoping you would say, by the way. So here comes my disagreement. I think the interesting question is, you know, does this, you know, almost formal computer science creep into, you know, day-to-day programming of, of the type that we typically do? And, you know, on one hand, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, people say, oh, I don't ever see any of this in Rails programs, which on some aspect is kind of true. But on the other hand, I think it's, oh, you actually don't see it because you don't know what it is, right? That if you were familiar with this, you would actually see this. So to give one kind of concrete example, which you sort of circled around to, is I have seen people billions of times write a regular expression where they nest a quantifier, like a plus or a star, inside of a quantifier, like a plus or a star, right. and then their application hangs. And they always come to me and say, how come this doesn't work? And I want to start that conversation with, okay, imagine a finite automaton, <laughs> right? And then, but you can't. And so you just say, oh, you can't nest quantifiers because it turns out, you know, that it's, you know, too much work and, and, uh, it, it won't get its right answer, which isn't true strictly. You can nest quantifiers under certain cases, but that, like, Without this understanding, you don't know where it applies to you. Or your client comes to you and says, we need to put in this program that just, you know, uh, figures out this, and then we'll do that in the background, and then we'll display it on this web page or whatever. And if you're familiar with these concepts, you can sometimes say, uh, actually, it turns out you can't know that, <laughs> right? Because it reduces to the halting problem or something not covered as, as directly in the book, uh, algorithm complexity and, and how long it would take. We can know that, but unfortunately it would require more time than the heat death of the universe. So right. you know, there again, off the table. You know. Well, that's something that I very conveniently and very consciously completely avoided talking about. I, I think that there is, if someone else wants to write a whole other book like this about computational complexity theory, I would absolutely love to read that book, but I absolutely do not want to write it. And so I, I, I kind of, other than the very occasional hand waving of like, you know, I, I always say it in a, in a deliberately sarcastically understated way of like, well, you know, this version of the computation might take slightly longer to run than the original one. And usually what I mean by that is it's going to take astronomically longer. You know, like if you encode even an extremely simple computation as a cyclic tag system, you're going to have to run it until the heat death of the universe, probably before you could even see your output. So like, just because these things are possible does not mean that they're efficient. But I was conscious that there was quite a, as I said, the whole book was really just a yak shave to be able to talk about, firstly, uh, universality in simple systems, and secondly, uh, the halting problem, basically. Those are the two, or Rice, Rice's theorem was what I really wanted to talk about. So, like, everything that is there is is just to support those two ideas, and it felt like that was already more than I could handle explaining, and so I just couldn't really face the issue of talking about computational complexity. But that is, an, is like, an, an absolutely fascinating area that I don't have a very good grasp of, and I would really love it. I wish someone would sit down and properly explain it to me 
using Ruby code because that would, that's exactly what I need, right? So if this book can provoke someone who knows about that stuff to do what I have done, but better and with something more difficult, that would be absolutely amazing because then I would finally understand it. And, uh, you know, all I've got to bring to the table is like, isn't it cool that you can take a regular expression and then give a denotational semantics of that expression in terms of finite state machines? Like here is a procedure for walking over a regular expression and generating a little, a little simple machine that will compute that. You know, I think that's quite cool. Like when I first read that, I was like, oh, it's actually quite neat that you can get a regular expression and just by walking over it, turn it into a little machine that does the same thing as that regular expression. Like that's fun. That's, you know, now when I write regular expressions, I enjoy it slightly more than I used to because I can like play a little game in my head of like, what does the finite state machine look like for this regular expression? Like that's pretty basic stuff, but that's, that's the level that my mind is operating at right now. Also of practical value from your book you specifically prove why you cannot parse HTML with regular expressions. <laughs> and then you give a footnote at the bottom that says, but you can with Ruby's regular expressions because they're way more powerful than regular, regular expressions. <laughs> right. But it's and still I, not I, a good idea. No. And I, I think I saw uh, James enjoying on Twitter my link to the infamous um, Stack Overflow response to that to that question. I love <laughs> that, that response. I give it to people all the time that actually, uh, there is one sidebar in this book that includes a regex to match balance parentheses, which is one of my favorite things, uh, because everybody always tells me regular expressions can't match balance parentheses, which, uh, they can, if you use Ruby's regex engine, obviously, or, or pearls or anything like that. And, a use of grep, which is like an innumerable method I never see in the wild, and the link to that Stack Overflow answer. That one stupid sidebar is cooler than a lot of the technical books. I <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I actually learned some cool Ruby stuff reading this book. Really? Like, yeah, like right. I didn't. Yes, I didn't well, know about array cycle. Yes. Wow. I saw James was complaining, not complaining, in the politest possible way, was saying that he doesn't like, uh, he doesn't like Ruby chapters at the beginning of these books. And I don't really like those either, but I felt that I wanted to put that in there so that O'Reilly could market this book as for programmers rather than for Ruby programmers. But I'm, I'm very glad that you found some value in that. Yeah. Th so, so, so I, I want to actually, uh, like the last thing I want to ask you about, because I know we're, we're running out of time here is, is your choice of using Ruby for this book and whether that worked well for you and what was like maybe the hardest thing about using Ruby or what made it awesome? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some people have been put off the book by that choice. You know, I think a, a lot of, uh, you know, people on Reddit or whatever were not happy with the choice to use a language like Ruby to explain these ideas. But I picked Ruby for two reasons. One of them is just that I like it. You know, I, I enjoy programming in Ruby. And in fact, everything that's in this book came out of me just playing you know, having like sitting down, thinking about stuff that I thought was interesting that I dimly remembered from learning it and then just building little interactive experiments and just little bits of fun. And, you know, the things that didn't work out and that weren't fun didn't didn't go into the book. Uh, so I only put stuff in that I felt was, you know, sufficiently interesting and fun that it that it was worth talking about. So um that was the first reason is that I could not have written the book without having a language that I felt that I enjoyed programming in enough to be able to just tinker with stuff and come up with executable explanations of things. But I, I sort of discovered in that process, 
I discovered that Ruby's actually really good for explaining these things. I mean, it's not ideal. Um, there are things that are a bit more difficult than they should be. And there are a couple of places in the book where I have to slightly bend over backwards to accommodate something or other for like an uninteresting technical reason. There are a couple of places where I have to undefine a constant just so that I don't have to do something worse. And that's a shame. But I found it incredibly useful to be able to explain things incrementally by uh, basically because of open classes. I found that like having open classes and being able to say, well, let's make a little whatever, like let's, let's, so like in that, in chapter two, where I'm walking through the semantics of programming languages, being able to firstly talk about syntax and define the, the classes for all of the different um, syntactic categories of the programming language, and then being able to go back and reopen those classes and say, well, now let's define let's let's define a reduce method on all of those classes and being able to like explode explanations in that way by just being able to go back and define new methods or redefine existing methods on objects. I actually found that on classes rather, I found that quite, it felt like a decent fit and it's not a perfect fit, but it felt like, you know, it, it never got to the point where I thought I'm using Ruby for this just because I want to use Ruby for this. And that's actually the cost is outweighing the benefits. Like I did start doing it with Ruby because that was the language I wanted to do it in, but I was definitely open to the idea of, I might get halfway through this book and realize it would be much better to do it in JavaScript or to do it in a language like standard ML, for example, which has got much better support for thing for functional programming and pattern matching and a load of features that I wish I had to be able to explain stuff. Or, you know, doing it all in Lisp, and then maybe the, the stuff about syntax, I wouldn't have to say so much because I could just represent everything with S expressions, right? So th- I was definitely on the fence about whether Ruby was the right thing. But then the more I got into it and the more of it I wrote, the more I felt like, it, in a way that I can't quite put my finger on, it felt like Ruby was being strangely cooperative. And the the notion of a program as like a mm. a, a, a sort of roiling pot of collaborating objects that are all just sending messages to each other and being able to go in and, you know, modify the method tables of those objects and put new implementations of methods into them whenever I wanted to meant that I could do this slightly weird thing where we're walking through a chapter and it's really just an annotated IRB session, you know, where I'm just, well, now if you paste this on in on the console, then, hey, all of your objects have this new method and you can actually call that method on those objects. Like it felt like a natural way of explaining stuff. And I was, I was really happy with that because it helped me it helped me solidify some of the things that I really enjoy about Ruby. And actually since writing the book, I've had a, I feel more enthusiastic about Ruby now because it's, again, it's not just the glue that holds together your Rails application. It's like a really fun and powerful and interesting programming language in its own right. And it's got idiosyncrasies and it's got like weird edges, but like that's what makes it cool and fun. And it's knowing about all of those edges and all of the weird bits buried in the core library and the standard library that like, that's where I get my fun from. And also, I just hope that the target audience of this book already know Ruby. I think that that, again, is an unspoken goal of the book, really, is that I I could have written this whole book and done all of the code examples in Haskell, and it probably would have been easier. But I don't know if any of the people who I want to read it would have read it. That's interesting. I, I feel like now I want to go, uh, after having talked to you again, I want to go back and reread the entire book because I feel like I caught lots of little things on the way through that, that now that I've talked to you reveal this kind of deeper insight. Like in your description right there, uh, you talked about how there was a couple of things that you hated that you had to do, like, you know, undefining a constant before you did something. And I actually have a note that says, I still hate Ruby tutorial chapters. Remove const, really? 
<laughs> and that was actually, you know, I was like, really? That's the part we have to learn about Ruby in order to understand? <laughs> you know? Well, you, you and I had a had a very genial conversation on a, on a gist about this, right? Where we were talking about the right way to define structs. And pretty much everything that is in the book code-wise is a result of like a ridiculous over refactored you know i i just kind of obsessively moved the moved the deck chairs around on all of the code in this book and tried a load of different ways of doing it and i tried you know i tried explaining things in different ways and i tried naming the classes differently and i tried working you know i i made a decision as part of that ruby tutorial chapter i made the decision that i wasn't even going to mention instance variables which is quite unusual for a ruby tutorial and i also i also decided that i wanted to introduce singleton methods before i talked about classes i so, loved that that's one of my notes as well oh cool so some of that stuff was a little bit unconventional but it was the result of me uh, to a first approximation, just trying everything. You know, I tried it every which way, and then I just picked the way that felt like the least bad. And it felt like there was definitely like a principle of conservation of pain at work, where like every time I got rid of one thing that was bugging me, something else cropped up. Um, and it was just a question of whether that thing that cropped up was better or worse than the thing I was trying to address in the first place. And so unfortunately, that thing about remove const was like, I, I did that in order to avoid doing something which I felt would be worse. And so that was something that I've just, it's not great, but it is something that is totally orthogonal to all of the other stuff I was talking about. And I can, without guilt, I can just hand wave it away and say, just don't worry about this. Like, this is not really relevant. It's just some BS that we have to do in order to make progress. And it's not part of my explanation. It's just something about Ruby that you don't need to know about. And that felt, although it doesn't feel good to do that, it felt better than getting bogged down in stuff to do with inheritance and super classes and singleton classes and stuff, which I just really, I just really didn't want to go there. Yeah. You talked about that you said struck. And we, like you said, have kind of debated that back and forth in a gist. And uh, it's interesting because now also we're writing a book about, you know, the correct way to use Ruby line by line, pretty much. And um, so we're having those discussions again about, you know, struct and can you use it this way and can you use it that way. And um, it, as you know, I, I don't like that usage as much as I like the ones I've showed before. But uh, as I read your book, I, I gained a deeper insight for how much you got out of that. So in the beginning, I thought you primarily did it to, uh, you know, skip writing the initialize method, which right. is somewhat true. But then, like you just said, you didn't have to cover instance variables because actually you're just using these struct accessors to get at the data that was already there. Also, you make use all over the book of the fact that struct gave you a meaningful equals method. Right, right. Um, for being able to test if two objects are equal based on the contents of their uh, attributes, which I thought was actually genius. And as, the more I read it, the more I think that you've actually uncovered a failing in Ruby that it doesn't give us some way to define these simple data objects other than struct. Uh, that doesn't come with all that baggage, but does give us this kind of data and this meaningful equals or something like that. So you kind right. of won me, won me over to your struct argument as I went through the book. 
That's excellent. And I, I would like to use this podcast as a propaganda platform to reach, uh, to reach people who care about Ruby to petition for the ability to define a struct that has zero fields. I find it deeply frustrating that you can't do that. And in fact, there's a point in the book where I want one of those and I have to define it myself and I have to implement equals myself. And I that noticed made, that. That, yes. made, that made me very sad because there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to create one of those. All of the stuff in struct extends perfectly well to zero fields, but the constructor, well, or, you know, uh, struct new doesn't, it, it, it errors out if you provide an empty list of fields and right. that is just a, a source of rage. So Ruby 2.1, let's make it happen. That's so awesome. funny. I do have one, one other question now that I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that I've talked to you a bunch, but did you purposefully make it as part of your crazy wall was one of the goals, teach some good programming habits along the way? Because I noticed several things I liked, like you use the functional aspect of uh, keeping your primitives primarily immutable. And you actually talk about that a little bit and the advantages it shows. And I really feel like this was an awesome way to show how much you can get out of that where you're doing things like state machines and stuff that change state every single time through. And they're all immutable and you made that work and it wasn't painful you know, in these objects, and it and it's came out very natural and was cool. Another thing I noticed is, um, uh, Josh probably loved this too, you use send a message correctly multiple times in the book. But not uh, everywhere. Not everywhere. Oh, not everywhere? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, man. I, I do have I do have some I do have some notes on that. <laughs> well, you use it correctly several times because I caught it I caught it a couple of times and and know that it was right. And then just you know teaching cool little things like um, you know link lists or infinite streams, kind of old school infinite storage, you know, and stuff like that. I just I, I wondered if it was a goal to actually teach good programming as you went. I think there are there are two distinct sides to that, and and one of them is that. Well, so the most important one is that I did not set out to make it a tutorial on how to write good programs because the whole, like one of the things that was on my crazy wall was like the code has to be in service of the explanation and not vice versa. Like I, I am not going to go through any pain of like talking about OO design or dry or any of that stuff, like just for the sake of it. Like if, so everything had to be relevant. So for example, there is a whole, there are, I'm sure that all of you, when you were reading this, got to places where you were like, I wish he would just declare a mix in, or I wish he would just inherit from a superclass or whatever your, whatever your preferred, uh, method of, uh, of, of objects, you know, uh, composition is. And I just decided I didn't want to get into that. Like I didn't want to have a sidebar that was like, oh, by the way, what we're doing here is that we're trying to extract this concern into a small self-contained object so that our, you know, so that we're doing proper OO programming. I was like, I was very keen to not do that. And so I had to grip my teeth in several places because I knew that I was writing, you know, quote unquote bad code, but I need, I also had to remind myself that that didn't matter. So, so that was the, that was the main thing. However, obviously, every time there was an opportunity for me to get out my functional programming hammer and like hit people over the head with it, I, I, I never missed that opportunity. So yeah, I did, I was careful to, to try and with, again, without necessarily calling it out, uh, to just make the code as good as I could without it being an impediment to understanding. And that thing you say about, um, immutability kind of, 
is, is doubly useful because firstly, it gives me an opportunity to show that you can have stuff be immutable and you can write these kind of pure functions that just return a new object rather than a modified version of the original object and everything can still be fairly clean and understandable and hopefully more understandable. Like that's why I did it that way. It was not because I enjoy hitting people with a functional programming hammer, but because I wanted them to see I wanted them to be able to understand the code that I was writing. And that is just how it makes sense to me is to have these kind of immutable value objects. And secondly, because it was actually necessary to make the code work. Like where I do that stuff, the way that I do the non-deterministic finite state machines and the non-deterministic pushdown automata, like those only work if you, because effectively what you're doing is, um, you know, you've got these objects that represent the state of the machines, and then you allow more than you, you allow like more than one path to be explored. And if I'd made everything mutable, you can't explore more than one path because as soon as you start exploring one execution path, you've destroyed the history. You've mutated your uh, finite automaton, and so you can't then go back and say, "Well, what if that machine had gone the other way?" So it was really just born out of necessity, actually, <laughs> to actually do the stuff that I wanted to do and make it clear. I had no choice but to program in that style. And of course, that is why I think that style of programming is good. But that's not the reason, you know, just because I think it's good was not enough reason to put it in the book. It was only because it was pursuant to making, firstly, making the code work and secondly, making the code clear. I love that answer, right? And to solve <laughs> it in an object-oriented way, you have to uh, do something like introduce some kind of stack where you're pushing your state onto that stack so that you can... When you backtrack, then you can yank your state back off that stack or something, right? So, right. Yeah. Awesome. So I have one last question for you, Tom. Okay. So this one uh, might take you out of your comfort zone because I want to talk less about uh, computational theory and more about your opinion. As you talked, as you answered Josh's question about why Ruby, you kept using the F word. You kept saying fun. And I, I don't want to give away the end of the book. Uh, spoilers, the butler did it. Um, but, but you get to, you, you get to the end of the book and you, you say something that makes me feel very ambivalent. You basically say all programming, you know, languages can ultimately be boiled down to a Turing machine. And that's, that makes me feel happy and awesome and that, you know, everything's, you know, great and equivalent and universal. And then you say, and every computational mechanism we've ever devised ultimately scales up into a Turing machine, into Turing right. equivalents. And I suddenly got very, very depressed. <laughs> and I realized that what was happening is on, and in one hand, I had Turing equivalents. And on the other hand, I had the Turing tar pit, which is where um, the Turing tar pit is where everything is possible, but nothing of interest is easy. Right. And so... I love Ruby and I hate PHP with like a legendary fury. And I've talked with people who love Haskell and its provability and immutability and all this stuff. And they hate Ruby and its statefulness with the same kind of hate that I have for PHP. And now I'm realizing that these are all Turing machines. These are all Turing equivalent. So the trade-off is not about power or about Turing equivalence. So you talked earlier about fun. And so I, I want to ask you, what is your opinion what are the things that you select programming languages for? Like, wow. what makes a good language for you? Well, in general, it obviously depends on like what it is I'm trying to do. And that's kind of the, that's sure. the really, that's the really boring answer. But like, let's pick something that is fit for purpose. But setting aside all of that. And then like in the abstract world of me sitting down on a Sunday and I want to write a program and what programming language do I choose? It just, it has to be about, yeah, basically that sense of fun. I think that's, that's what, I get excited about and I really like 
like Ruby is a really excellent sweet spot for me because it has the right, it, it is an improvement over the first programming language I ever learned, which was, um, BBC basic. So in the, in, in the UK, we had this, um, we had this kind of national, uh, in the, in the 1980s, we had this kind of national program where like all of the schools in the country got these, uh, got these microcomputers so that kids could learn to program on them. And like when you turned, when you turned on the, uh, BBC micro, you would just get a prompt and you could start typing basic programs. And like mm-hmm. I got, I got a huge like visceral thrill out of that as a kid. Like the ability to just type, you know, 10 print hello Tom 20 go to 10 was like, it gave me a massive kick. And so. I think Ruby has some of that feel to it that like it's not nowhere near as simple as BBC Basic, but it's got this kind of wonderful accessibility. And it has that the thing that I would that I can't describe any better than like that small talk feel like it has that, you know, not quite we haven't quite gone to the level of the actor model. You know, we're not quite writing programs in Erlang, but we are getting some of the benefits of thinking of our program as like a load of interacting objects you know like a load of little entities that are sending these little messages to each other and everything's very loosely coupled and everything's like runtime dynamic dispatch it's all very like it's all very easygoing and very relaxed and i just find that very liberating and 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 very fun and i mean as my the research that i did um, as a graduate student was not about this at all. It was all about static type systems. And I was very interested in like what's possible with type systems. And I find those also extremely elegant and beautiful mm-hmm. and, and useful and interesting and all of that stuff. But for whatever reason, I don't find myself naturally reaching for strongly typed or statically typed, I should say, programming languages. Um, I do really like Haskell. I think it's an amazing programming language. I find it fascinating and I do, I, I do Haskell for fun sometimes, but mm-hmm. I think that it's the, the fact that Ruby has that kind of untyped or, uh, you know, dynamically typed. I keep getting my words wrong, but you know what I mean? You know, it doesn't, yeah. it, it allows you to just have this kind of sloshing pool of objects and they, anything could happen and it's very easy and fun and relaxed and it just has a kind of a feel to it that a lot of other programming languages don't manage to have. And that's, that's been nicely amplified by Rails, I think. I mean, we all know, you know, we could, we could, there's, we could, there's another three hour podcast in what's wrong with Rails, but Rails has really <laughs> nicely leveraged that property of Ruby, right? It, it, it yeah. lets you feel as though things are just, it, the machine is working with you and you're just getting to say the things that you want to say in the way you want to say them. And everything is just kind of somehow working. And obviously the problem with Rails is you don't really know why it's working, but you know, it, 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 it has a kind of, when you're sitting down and you're doing Ruby, it puts you into a state of mind that I think means that you can have fun more easily and that you you are, for better or worse, you are less constrained by the computer's expectations of you. And it's like I was saying about the Tower of Abstraction, like it's it's giving you something that's very close to, and in a sort of a Larry Wall sense, it's very close to like what you wanted to write and what you were already thinking. And I think that hum- humans don't naturally think in a statically typed way i think we live in a we live in a world where objects by which i mean literal objects do kind of have a dynamic type you know there are actual ducks ducks actually do quack right and Mm -hmm. so i think i I think that ruby has that kind of humanist quality to it that some of the that some other languages that are more into you know punishment are 
although there are loads and loads of benefits to being punished by your programming language, I just think yeah. it puts you in, it, it attracts a different kind of person and it puts you into yeah. a different mindset when you're writing your program. And so even though I feel very strongly that programming is a mathematical activity and that when you're, and I try to explain this a little bit in the book, that like when you're writing a program, well, to a, firstly, you're just writing down a gigantic number. So writing down a gigantic number is sort of an inherently mathematical activity anyway, but all of the stuff that happens in terms of the evaluation of your program can be understood mathematically. And that doesn't have to be in a formal mathematical way, but in the other sense of thinking about things in terms of abstractions, which is what mathematics is really, like that's what programming is. And so you should be able to think mathematically about your programs. But for me, it doesn't necessarily follow that I want to spend all of my time working in languages that make me work like a mathematician all of the time and and when you yeah. work in languages that have very advanced type systems you do have to think much more formally when you're writing programs and i think mm -hmm. it's nice that ruby is a bit more chilled out than that because that's the mode i like to be in when i'm trying to be creative and i think yeah. cr you know being able to be in that open mode and think creative thoughts is super important to me because otherwise i just can't get anything done and ruby lets me be in that open mode for more of the time and spend less of the time in the closed mode of like just frowning at my computer and and wanting to rage quit right so that's that's yeah. why i like it that's awesome. I, I you use that phrase sloshing pool of objects and <laughs> and you used it as as a feature of a thing that you love about Ruby, but you, but you also said fit for purpose and I it, it I like that because it made me realize that I don't know a single defense contractor who would not be terrified by that phrase sloshing <laughs> pool of objects. <laughs> right? They want something formal and provable. And sure. so so given something more fit fit for purpose. I like that. Thank you. I think your enthusiasm for programming, both in the book and on this call, is just like super infectious. And, yeah. and I hope it spreads through the entire community because that is definitely how I feel every day. I wish Katrina was here because she explains some of these things better. She taught me one time, uh, like, um, you know, it's like, oh, what if you're working on a web app for car ads? Isn't that kind of lame? And she's like, well, yeah, of course car ads are lame, but it's the code. The code's the interesting yeah. thing. You know, it's why is this variable here? Does this variable need to be here? Isn't there a way that we can make this variable go away and we can elegantly use method dispatch to just bypass all of this work or whatever and it's clear that that you share that enthusiasm of how it all works and i think it's just super cool yeah you may not know anything about computers but you're clearly passionate about them <laughs> and that's what we love about you that's what it's going to say on my gravestone i think so that's a good that's yep. a good way to go all right well uh, it sounds like we kind of wound down anything else before we uh, wrap up and do picks no no let's do picks <laughs> actually, actually, I, actually, I have one last, uh, one last uh, thing for Tom, and that's Tom. Where are you speaking in the future? I mean, do, oh, do you have that, any was, speaking a, that like was a slow pitch over home plate. <laughs> that is a, a very good question, Josh. I will be speaking at the Golden Gate Ruby Conference in San Francisco, and I will be speaking about uh, the halting problem. So, if you're interested in the halting problem, come to that conference. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love so, the way he kind of said it as, oh, a sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, that was, that, that was totally natural. Yeah, yeah, it seemed, yeah we did not discuss natural. that. So, so uh, unfortunately, Gogoruko is uh, already sold out. So uh, are there any other uh, opportunities people would have to uh, see you speak? 
No, that's it right now. I mean, I put in a, I've put in a proposal for RubyConf, but who knows what's going to happen with that. So maybe, maybe in November in Miami, but uh, fingers crossed. If okay, they well, do not take your proposal for RubyConf, we will riot. That's, okay. that's all, <laughs> all six of us? Awesome. Exactly. All cool. right. Okay, so picks. Josh, why don't you start us off with picks? Yeah, because apparently I'm eager. Right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I have a couple picks that are relevant to the topic. So as, as uh, Tom mentioned in one of his uh, impossible programs, or u- was it universality? It, it, we were talking about the game of life. You talked about how it was Turing complete. And I, I found so- – I, I saw these videos a while ago, and I, and I dug them up. And there are some pretty cool videos showing the execution of Conway's game of life doing a Turing machine. And – it's just astounding to watch and see how it does things like push values on the stack. And it's, it's totally cool to watch. So uh, that's fun to check out. There's also like, you can search around and find all these other things that people have built Turing machines in like Minecraft. (laughs) You know, people have videos of that. So I, I, I don't have any links to that, but it's worth doing a little hunting around. And then the other thing is that, that, um, like rule 110, uh, cellular automaton system, Yee-hoo! which is which is astounding, but it's also it occurs in nature. So uh, there's a a, cu- a couple um, mollusks, uh, you know, like, uh, sea you know sea uh, snails of a sort that their shells are uh, essentially the rule one ten cellular automaton, and they have exactly the same thing going on where the cells that create pigments are influenced by the amount of pigment in their neighbors. And you can see exactly the same kind of pattern evolving on their shell as the shell grows. So I'm, I just have a link to a like Wikipedia page that shows that. And I, I'm getting rule 110 on my tattoo that I'm getting in like uh, two weeks. So <laughs> when it was in the book, that just totally validated my choice, you know? <laughs> okay. Nut. and and then i and then i just have like a silly one which is um it's a link to a a description of an easter egg in google maps where apparently if you wander down the right street in london uh, there's a picture of a police call box on the sidewalk and if you navigate your map into the call box you find yourself in the control room of the tardis awesome so very cool yeah (laughs) okay so that's it for me this week all right. Uh, James, what are your picks? A uh, friend of mine that I used to work with uh, made me aware of this tech blog uh, recently that I hadn't run across before called Building Wainlow. Uh, and I was just poking around on it, and uh, I found some uh, super cool articles that I really enjoyed reading. There's one on uh, uh, how to do kind of events in Rails applications, uh, and it, it uses this little gem, uh, but the gem is actually very, very small and simple. And, and just the idea of how you extract code out of a Rails controller is the kind of thing we talk about all the time on this show and, and shown in a super clear way here. And I like how the gem makes that uh, even more accessible. Uh, the gem is called Bentable, by the way, I think. Uh, so check out that article. Uh, some cool other ones that uh, I read. Uh, on this blog, uh, they had a neat map reduce article doing the map re- uh, map and reduce steps using uh, plain old Unix utilities. So uh, cat, ox, sort, unique, that kind of stuff. Uh, really interesting reading there. 
And then uh, there's this other article I liked um, on uh, quote-unquote vertical sharding, and I'm not sure I agree with the language used there to describe vertical uh, sharding and what that is, but... Uh, the process is really neat and in that how they're busting up this table and they give you the series of steps uh, for doing it, like replacing any joins with these helper methods. And then we could adjust these helper methods so they lived in different databases and uh, blah, blah, blah. It's really interesting reading. So uh, there's just a cool blog that, uh, like I said, uh, a friend of mine made me aware of and I had some fun poking around on. So hope other people do too. Those are my picks. Awesome. David, what are your picks? I just have one. Um, this is for everybody who listens to the show who loves uh, WWE wrestling and is also a grammar pedant. Uh, CM Punk is a uh, wrestler, apparently. I've been out of following wrestling for a long time. And he does a, a uh, YouTube show called Grammar Slam. And I love what I've seen so far because uh, the slam is sometimes literal. And uh, what I will link to is uh, his, his episode where he talks for two and a half minutes about literally versus figuratively. And uh, because we, we had that slip earlier in the show and uh, from that, I'll link to that in the show notes. And from there you can get to any of CM Punk's grammar slams, uh, other episodes. And uh, I thought I had a huge list of, other picks for the show, but uh, I think CM Punk is good enough for, for today. Awesome. All right, I've got uh, two picks. The first one is I made the joke on the freelancer show that there's still gray matter on the wall, and I'm not sure if it's because I hit my head that hard on the wall or if it's from when my head exploded trying to use QuickBooks. But anyway, um, it just didn't work out, so I wound up uh, trying out Less Accounting. That's at lessaccounting.com. And... Wow, it's it's a whole lot easier to use. It makes a ton more sense. It's something that I can actually do my books in. So if you're kind of the solo freelancer type person and you uh, need some kind of bookkeeping software, uh, that's one that I highly recommend. And the other one, um, I've been picking up iPhone programming here and there, and I've been going through the Big Nerd Ranch Guide to iOS programming. They have a new version or a new edition coming out in January, I believe, but uh, the current edition is pretty good, and uh, so far it's worked well with the version of Xcode that I have. So if you're interested in that, then go check that out as well. Tom, what are your picks? Uh, I have three picks, which are all tenuously related to learning and teaching. <clears throat> um, the first one is a book called Learn to Program by Chris Pine. Um, recently, a few months ago, has had a second edition. Um, it's a, a pragmatic programmer's book. It is for total beginners, but I think it's it's really good. Uh, if you ever want to teach someone how to program with Ruby, I think this is an excellent book to do it with. The thing, the one feature I wanted to call it out for is that it has lots of exercises through and it has the answers at the back of the book, but the, but the solutions that it gives are in two flavors. He gives a solution, which is how you could have answered this exercise using what you know so far, what I've taught you in the book. But then he has, here is how I would do it. And so for every one of these exercises, you can see not only how you should have done it based on what you've been taught, but also how a super powerful idiomatic Ruby program would solve it and I think that's an excellent idea so I just wanted to call that out um, my second pick is um, a gem called show term which is 
uh, effectively a screencast recorder for the terminal. It's been, everyone's been talking about it the last couple of days, but I think if you haven't seen this and you're interested in explaining stuff on the internet, um, it seems like a super powerful way of doing that. So it will just record everything you do in your terminal and upload it to a URL. And it's all just done with JavaScript. So it's, um, it's effectively replay your terminal session using just JavaScript in the browser. And there's a scrubber and you can change the speed and stuff. So if you're writing an interactive tutorial about how to do something, I think having these sort of embedded explanations of things that actually show you what's going on in the terminal is super useful. So that's, uh, that's worth checking out. And my third pick is self-promotional, which is that the next thing I'm working on is a little ebook and screencast thing trying to explain how web applications work. So it's kind of targeted at people who've maybe learned Rails and know how to make associations between Rails models, uh, but don't really know what is actually going on. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still working on this, uh, but uh, it's it's effectively going to be a bottom-up explanation of how you can write a web application just using pure Ruby from sort of opening a TCP socket through to parsing the HTTP request through to making a request to the database and then sending a response and then explaining the structure of frameworks like Rails and Sinatra in terms of all of that code that you've written and showing what they do for you and how they do it and stuff like that. So it's sort of really aimed at intermediate people who want to get a better understanding of how web applications actually fit together and work. Um, and that's at rubywebapp.com anyone who's interested those are my picks awesome that is so cool awesome all right well we've gone way over so uh i'm just gonna wrap this up uh thanks for coming tom and we'll catch y'all next week